Welcome to Profiles in Eccentricity, a show about weirdos, with your hosts, John Fahey, Aaron Peter, and Matt Brutzow. Hello folks, welcome to Profiles in Eccentricity, it's a show about weirdos, doggone it. My name is John Fahey. Joining me as always, overwhelmingly good-looking son of a bitch, a man I'll love to the day I die, Mr. Aaron Joseph Pita. Hi, John. Hi. I don't want you to die, but I do want you to love me until you do. Wow. To his right, my left, mm. indispensable to the program, overwhelmingly Hi. talented oh. and gorgeous, mm. Mr. Matt Rousseau, newly returned from the woods. <laughs> it's great to be back uh, here. The woods were great. Yeah, uh, I wish I was still there in many ways. <laughs> you went on a vision quest uh, of sorts. Certainly, yeah. things were seen and imagined, mm. and uh, and you were chopping. Maybe wood. You're sure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stacking wood. Yeah, chopping, yeah. Wood. Chopping wood. Up, chopping wood. Down. wood. Uh, I um uh did you did you like how aggressive I got on the phone when you called me? <laughs> well, I was trying to think of I, when I called you from the house phone. The only person who picked up, <laughs> and also you two are the only people I know whose mailboxes either aren't are are not full and set up. Everybody else I know, either is mail, their mailbox is full or not set up. Nah, yes. yeah. But yeah. John, you picked up, and I wasn't sure what to say, so I just said, who's this? <laughs> <laughs> and I go, you called me, who's this? <laughs> Instant aggression. <laughs> I Because like, I was like, I'm rolling the dice, I'm picking up this number I don't understand. And, uh, you know, uh, and then uh, yeah. I, I get met with, who's this? <laughs> and I was so like, uh, no! Yeah, no! What? That's the right response. But that though. was great. That yeah. was really cool. Yeah, I didn't pick up. No, um, no. I, was, I was. You were a sleepy panda. I was, I was mm-hmm. a sleepy panda. Sure. And, but I did see the call. And I was like, what the fuck? 707. 707. 707. I pick it up. And then I got the voicemail. <laughs> what it, fucking girl do I know in 707? <laughs> 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 what fucking city is this? <laughs> Uh, this must be that Sasquatch well, seven, I thought, like Some like, you know, weed grower or something. Yeah, 707 yeah, yeah. is like... There, is, there is a weed grower in the woods there. You're, yeah. not, you're not supposed to hike around too much anymore because yeah. you could get shot. Stay away from my plants! Yeah, you live in one of them houses with the high fences. <laughs> I left you a voicemail. I love leaving uh, drunken voicemails. That's my was, favorite thing. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I loved getting it. I listened to it and I, I was a happy camper. Good. Mm-hmm. It was sweet, sweet to hear your voice. It was great. And uh, know that you were thinking of me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I really enjoyed uh, the update. Um, I I won't get into it because we got a, we got a big program. But, um, we do. It's large. It was great hearing you. Um, maybe we can talk about it on the Patreon. Sure. Uh, just your experiences out there. Because, sure. Because it was cool. I was telling Aaron all about like everything you said mm-hmm. <laughs> the next day. <laughs> Um, yeah, he wouldn't shut up about it. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he played me your voicemail first. Oh, okay. So okay. We, were, okay. we were both having a mat fest in your we absence. Yeah. It's the beautiful thing about disappearing. Is yeah. You really, uh, yeah, you take those moments. Did you hear about what Matt's doing in the woods? <laughs> He's all alone. <laughs> did he call you? He called me, too. Uh, who, who, who did he call first? <laughs> we don't know. Um, Matt, today you have a long-awaited, uh, much-prepared profile. Yes. Uh, the the first two parter in the in this in the history of the program. Yeah, it it will have to be because there's no way I can do this in one. Um, it's voluminous. It's voluminous. Hmm. It's a story of. It, I mean, it's a story of a man, but also a man of on with, this show. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
<laughs> Next you're gonna tell me he's white. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, but it's it's the story of times. It's the story of of where he came from and where he went and what was happening in the country and. Uh, he lived. He had more than one life, and to the point where, when he died, he, he didn't die. It it continued. It, and uh, it's a it's a story of uh, of real. When, when people say only in America, they usually they're politicians. And they're like, I got rich, and only in America. Uh-huh. Yeah, like, you can get rich in any fucking place. <laughs> <laughs> but it really feels like the things that uh, we're going to be going through are really uh, authentic to. Uh, only America. The American condition. Yes. John, who? John? Uh, sorry, Matt. Yes. What the fuck are you asking me for? <laughs> what am I asking you? You probably showed him how. <laughs> Matt, who is this man? Uh, I'm going to talk about a man that uh, I think everybody has heard of, but most people don't know. Uh, his name is, uh, he was born Woodrow Wilson Guthrie in 1912. But to first explain his birth, you not the sex stuff, but just the, <laughs> the, the the life behind it. I first want to talk about his parents. His father was named Charlie, Charlie Guthrie. And uh, in uh, uh, the early 1900s, uh, his father, Jerry P. Guthrie, was one of these guys, a real cowboy. Mm-hmm. One of these guys, he would buy, uh, he would buy a, a stock, a herd. He would raise it. He would sell it. And then he would, you know, split the profits with the man he bought it from. He would shoot. He, would, he was uh, a herder. He had eight kids in Oklahoma, uh, or eight kids in Texas, and then uh, uh, when Oklahoma started opening up, he said, oh, my second wife is one-eighth Cherokee, let's go there. Because it was at the time where Oklahoma was, uh, the there was the five civilized tribes, as they called them in Oklahoma, and what that meant is there were five tribes in Oklahoma that said, look at all these white folks, in order for us to survive, we need to do white folk stuff, which was own slaves and dress like them. Whoa. And then the Civil War happened, and the tribe said, well, why would we join the Union? <laughs> How did we get fucked out of this, too? Yeah. <laughs> and so they joined the Confederacy, and then the Confederacy lost, and then the United States said, well, uh, those are our lands now. Oh, oh. boy. Oh, boy. Oof. Hit the wrong side. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, the Guth- Guthries, Jerry P. Guthrie, took his family, his eight kids, his his son Charlie, and they went to Oklahoma. And Charlie was a rustler by day, and at night he would read. He spent all of his time reading. He would get books, correspondence courses. He would take any book he could find, and he could read it. And 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 by the time he was sixteen, he was the advisor for his dad's business. Uh, and then he, from his books, he learned woodworking and boxing and math and science. And then he left at 18 to become his own cowboy. So you're telling me that back in the day, <laughs> these books mm-hmm. were like YouTube. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess that's one way to put it. Interesting. Yeah, this is how you punch a fellow. I read in this book. <laughs> how do you chop this wood, though? Well, I get another book. <laughs> if only there's a book to learn how to read. <laughs> And in the late 1800s, there was another family, uh, this woman named Mary Maloney. She married a man named George P. Sherman. He was a Kansas dirt farmer. And the eight- <laughs> yeah, it was, it's a real thing. Wow. In the 1890s, they also were caught up in the Oklahoma land rush. And uh, one day after they moved to Oklahoma while crossing a shallow river, George Sherman fell off his horse and died. Mm-hmm. He was a healthy man and never made any sense. But it began this story running through the family that 
this is just a family where strange tragedies happen, mm-hmm. and you just kind of move on from it. Do you think he might have just been riding along and realized there wasn't much money in dirt? <laughs> he was in Oklahoma <laughs> when this happened. It's fucking everywhere. <laughs> no one's buying it. <laughs> now, he had four kids with Mary Maloney. And uh, he had four daughters, actually, and she remarried and she became a school teacher. And when Charlie Guthrie went out to become a cowboy at 18, he couldn't handle it. He wasn't a very good cowboy, but he went into town. He became a bookkeeper and an assistant postmaster, and he would teach handwriting in the town. And uh, he was one of the few people who enjoyed reading. And so when he went to this school, this Indian school where Mary Maloney was teaching at, he became a regular there. And when he was there, he saw one of her four daughters, uh, this woman named Nora Bell. And she wasn't the prettiest one, they say. (laughs) But she was the one that felt most alive. She was a tomboy. She could ride side saddle. She had a blind horse that she would guide with her hands, running full speed through the brush. She would sing old tunes her mother taught her. And uh, after a year of courting between Charlie and Nora Bell, they were married in 1904. <laughs> she was 15 and he was 24. Wow. That was very normal back then. Yeah. And they built a beautiful house in the uh, city of Okima. Okima. O-K-E-M-A-H in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And uh, Okima was, uh, is a city that was on, on land stolen from the Indians. Mm-hmm. But as is every as city is here. All the land. <laughs> And next next door to the town was a town of black separatists called Boley. And Boley was filled with with freed black men, black men who had run away, black families who were who who wanted to start their own life. Guys, guys from the tribe. Some of them were. How's the tribe going? Well, <laughs> part of it because they were slaves, but the Cherokees didn't treat them like whites. Treat, treated them as slaves. Right. They used them as interpreters. They they taught them math. They taught them business. Ah. They, they so when when they split off from the tribe, they formed their own town, and they were doing well enough that when it came when, when Oklahoma uh, was founded and they first started voting, all of the whites in Okima realized that Boley had more residents and would be able to outvote them. Mm-hmm. And so what they did is they they made a rule where there's uh, they said no no ballot boxes in in uh, Boiley then you have to go to this nearby town and vote there yeah. and so when the uh, first uh, the first voting happened and the Democratic candidate that Boley uh, or the Republican candidate I can't remember that they voted for won all the people in in Okama and uh, uh, Ofusky County said oh well they voted in the wrong town so those votes don't count <laughs> wow. Very normal stuff back then. Mm. Yeah. Back then. Yeah. yeah. Back then, yeah. Getting the idea the system's rigged <laughs> or something. Yeah, there's something about that. And so there was always a tension between them. And then one day, a sheriff from uh, Okima, or, or Ofuski County, went over to Boley to arrest a man. And while he was arresting, trying to arrest this black man, the black man's son thought the sheriff was reaching for his gun, and he shot him. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and the sheriff, he bled out on their front lawn, and uh, th- the rumor was that he was asking for water and they wouldn't give him any. Mm. And so the son was arrested, and the whole family was put into jail in Okima. Mm-hmm. And there they were for a very brief time before the white citizens of Okima broke them out of jail, 
and then hung them on their bridge. Oh. And there would be a, a oh good the white folks are coming along. Oh. They 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 the, they killed the father and they hung the mother and Jesus the mother's son Christ. and left the baby to die on the road. No Whoa. way. And one of these people who took part in this rumor, there's no documentation of it, was Charlie Guthrie. Really? And because Charlie Guthrie wanted to become a politician, he he took part in this. Mm-hmm. There's <sighs> that now. It's rumor. There's no documentation of it, but it's. Everyone's pretty sure. Wow. Yeah, Charlie he, was there. And how, how old was he at this point? Now, this was probably, this was around 1908, 1909. Um, and uh, he was about 28, 26, 27, something like that. Hmm. And uh, there would be a, a, a famous song written uh, by a resident of Okima much later called uh, Don't Kill My Baby and My Son. Uh, never recorded by him, but uh, he was very aware of the history on July 14, 1912, Woodrow Wilson Guthrie was born. He was named after the uh, uh, Republican, was it, uh, uh, the newly chosen Democratic presidential candidate, Woodrow Wilson. They mm-hmm. named him after him because Charlie wanted to be a part of the Democratic Party. So he figured, why not? He's a, uh, Woodrow's a hero of mine. And uh, he was the third kid of Charlie and Nora. Charlie was 32. Nora was 23. They had three kids at that point. And Woody describes the town... As this way, he said it was one of the stingiest, square dancingest, yellingest, preachingest, walkingest, talkingest, laughingest, cryingest, shootingest, fight fistingest, gamblingest, gun and razor carryingest of our ranch and farm towns because it blossomed into one of our for- first oil booms. Mm-hmm. It was in the quicksand and mud of the rivers rising, the wind that blew and whipped from east to west in a split second, the lightning that splintered the barn loft, the snaky tailored cyclone. The snaky-tailed cyclone, prairie outbursts, the months of fiery drought that crippled the leaves, the timber fires, prairie fires that took more than it could build back. In the fights of men against all of these, that I was born, the third child of our family, and heard my mother sing to my brother Roy and my sister Clara. And one of his earliest memories was his mother singing on the piano uh, the song Picture from Life's Other Side. Are you familiar? Hank Williams, one of, it was one of his kind of hits. Uh, it's an incredibly dreary song, Pictures from Life's Other Side. Mm-hmm. One of the verses goes, Now the last scene is by that river of a heartbroken mother and baby as the harbor lights shine and they shiver on an outcast soon no one will save. And yet she was once a true woman. She was somebody's darling and pride. God help her, she leaps. Oh, there's no one to weep. It's just a picture from Life's Other Side. Oof. It's just a fun song to sing to the kids. <laughs> Mom, sing that one again. <laughs> That sounds like the intro to the Twilight Zone. (laughs) And as they were growing up, they were kind of a middle-class family. Charlie was getting into real estate and handwriting expertise. He was the handwriting expert of the town, which meant he would go to the courthouse often. And they said he could distinguish one Indian's ex from another. But probably he was just like, you know, here's who can, who's the best way to grift here? Uh, When he says an ex, like as in their signature. signature, Yeah. Yeah. At one point, he, he was so good in real estate, he owned 30 farms. He bought a house. Um, uh, they built a beautiful house, and it burned down. And so they moved into another house. And he was making good money. They taught the money. They taught all the kids horse riding. Woody couldn't ride a horse. He fell off a horse when he was four. He broke his elbow, and uh, the doctor reset it wrong. And then a couple of days later, he fell out of a tree. And he had such a bad time with the chloroform they used as a, a, a pain reliever that he just never went back, and his arm was never the same. Hmm. And so Charlie was making good money, and he decided to give politics uh, a, another go because he, he, he had been run out of the first time. The Democratic candidate 
the Democratic machine had run him out of his old position. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, had, he, had, he had reached higher than he should have. And they said, we don't like you, so we're going to go with the other guy we know. And there was a, it was all very shady. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you said this was the chief sex. <laughs> <laughs> But, but Charlie was right. He had a he had a he he had an art. He had a, a newspaper uh, that he he would have columns in, and in order for to give politics another go, he went out and he decided to fight socialism, and he 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 did as much as he could, and he, he it didn't work out. And now he was about forty years old, and he was losing all his money. And he was going broke, and so he did what everybody did to fix their problems. Then they decided they he made another kid with his wife. Ah, oh. right. And so, and so this is what, like now, nineteen fourteen. This is now nineteen fourteen or so. Nice. And uh, things are getting hard for Nora. She's thirty now. Uh, her fourteen-year-old daughter Clara is is very beautiful and very headstrong. And but Nora, things are getting weird with Nora. She's becoming forgetful. She starts wandering around town. She's not mending clothes, the children's clothes anymore. Ooh. And then one day she broke her arm and she couldn't play the piano. And now she had no outlets. Oh boy! And she she started fighting with her kids more. And when Clara was uh, fourteen, uh, Nora kept her home from school because she was very upset with her for for some strange reason. And they were fighting. And Clara wanted to go to school, and they were fighting. And in some wild scene, Nora uh, threw some coal oil on Clara's dress, and then put a match to it. Oh my god! To scare her, she said, because the house burned down. And that was scary to all of them. And what happened is the dress caught fire. Clara ran outside and she basically was smothered by a neighbor. Nora just watched from the door, couldn't do anything. She was helpless. And Charlie's in town and he hears the fire bell go and he hears, sees all these people rushing and he runs into the crowd and he rushes home and he finds his daughter, Clara, and her skin is just sagging off of her. Oh, God. All of her nerve endings are destroyed. And she died that night because she had no skin to keep the body heat in. Holy fucking shit. Oh, my shit. God. And she froze to death from fire. What the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> Sorry. No, it, I'm so it's, fucking... It's, a, it's insane. It's one of the most insane things I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I'm saying it's going to be a long one. It's freezing in here. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there was a fire. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, that was the, that's what the family said. You know, there was a fire. And of course there were rumors around town. Nora was getting weird. And Woody was seven and (sighs) nothing. The family would never be normal ever again. Jesus. They moved into another house. Uh, Nora was getting wilder. His mother, she was getting moody. She was depressed at one point. Uh, a, a, a family friend came over and she said, I'll make you breakfast. And then she took the bacon out and threw it on the floor and started stabbing it with a knife. She would ride a horse through town full speed and then just ride it back, ride it home like nothing happened. And this is what Woody said about it. He said uh, she would be all right for a while and treat us kids as good as any mother. And then once, all at once it would start, something bad and awful. Something would start coming over her. And it would come by slow degrees. Her face would twitch, her lips would snarl. Her teeth would show, spit would run out of her mouth, and she would start out in a low, grumbling voice and gradually get to talking as loud as her throat could stand, and her arms would, 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 would spin up at her sides, then behind her back and swing in all kinds of curves. Her stomach would wrap in a hard ball, and she would double over into a terrible-looking hunch and turn into another person, it looked like, standing there right before me and 
Roy, his brother Roy. And now also Charlie's struggling. The town's, uh, 10 years earlier, the town hit oil, and uh, it was going wild. But it was, he was too old for all these youngsters coming in, and he wasn't quick enough when all the money came in and all the sharks came with it. And by 1923, he was bankrupt. Hmm. So they moved the family to Oklahoma City to run a motorcycle dealership because Nora's stepbrother, Leonard, was a daredevil. He was a famous daredevil in the country. Really? Yeah. He was a motorcycle daredevil. And then just a few, a week or so before the dealership was going to happen, he crashed his motorcycle into a car and died. <laughs> just another of those weird... <laughs> he froze <family>. to death. <laughs> <laughs> There's a crash. And so that, that other outlet for Charlie to make money was gone. So they moved back to Okuma, 1924, into a tiny little shack. The city was dead. It was matured. The boom was over. And Charlie became a clerk, and Nora was getting crazier. She was falling. She was dropping things. Doctors didn't know it was wrong. But sometimes she would go to the theater, and Woody would go with her, too, and they would watch Charlie Chaplin. And he noticed that with Chaplin, you know, this clever tramp, the knowledgeable fool, ahead and aware of all of his surroundings, even though he pretended like he wasn't. And Charlie noticed that this was the only time she would be happy anymore. She would laugh. And, uh, or, or Woody would notice that. And Woody was 12, and he was just this little, little mop of brambled curls and tattered clothes. He'd walk around collecting junk, some of it to sell, some of it to use. And he said he, he got his first harmonica. Uh, or first, it was a French harp from a colored shoeshine boy who would make it sound like a train. Or maybe he found it among the junk. You know, it's one of those stories. Right. And he would sit in front of the local produce market and just play the French harp for hours on end. And he'd run into storytellers and cowboys and rustlers coming through town or in town. And, uh, and, and he would he run into Indians and, and the last oil men. And he would just hang out and just get to know him and just be a genial little boy. Yeah, chop it up. And by the old racetrack there, there's this woman named Old Lady Atkins. And he would go over and hang out with her. And she'd make him dinner. And they would talk. And... Uh, and then in, in no time, she left, and no one filled her, 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 took her shack, so Woody just made it into his own little clubhouse. And he would hang out there with his friends and draw cartoons, and, but by now his family was the local trash. Hmm. And everywhere, he, when he went to school, the kids would make fun of him, and they'd make fun of his, his mom, and, and then at one point, uh, his mom, she chased George, his younger brother George with a knife, she left their, their newest daughter, Mary Jo, just to walk around town. She was a baby just walking through town. <laughs> and so George, George and Mary Jo, the youngest kids, they were sent to live with relatives in, in Texas, in Pampa, Texas. And uh, Woody would just stay out all night. He didn't want to go home and, and just have to deal with the, that insanity. <laughs> well, you got to find the baby, too. Yeah. <laughs> you could be anywhere by now. And so then one, one day... Woody had left early in the morning to go just wander around town and just do his fun stuff. And Charlie was sleeping on the on the couch, and Nora was watching him. And she picked up a kerosene lantern, and next thing he knew, there was an explosion, and Charlie was on fire. Oh, my God! Are you kidding? And he ran out onto the, the, the yard, and, and he, put, he, he rolled around, and a neighbor came by, put him out. They brought him to the hospital. And he was there for a couple of weeks, but the first first day he was there, his his brother Claude showed up, and Claude said, "What, what can I do for you?" And he said, "Just give me a cigarette." And uh, <sighs> then Claude went to their house where Nora was, and Nora was pretending like everything was fine. Uh, she asked, she said, "I'll make you breakfast," but she would take the eggs and just throw full eggs into his skillet. <laughs> 
I thought she was going to stab him. <laughs> and so that day, she was taken to what was then an insane asylum in Norman, Oklahoma. And all of this happened in one day. And when Woody got back that night, there was no one in the house anymore. What? His dad was in the hospital, his mom was in insane asylum, and no one was around to tell him what happened. Baby hit the road. <laughs> well, the baby was in Pampa with the that was Mary. That was Mary Joe. And so when 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 Charlie got better, he went to live with with his, his sister Maud in Pampa with George and Mary Joe. And Roy, his older brother, was twenty one, and Woody was fourteen, uh, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, on his own in the city. Figured it out for yourself. Yep. There was no one left. So he lived full time in his shack. He would go out of the street and he would he would play his harp and he would sing and dance and people would give him money and and families would take him in because they felt bad for him and they he would sleep there and they'd make him dinner and uh, one family the Moore family they they he lived with them for months and it almost seemed normal but he never really took it because he was always worried about it it disappearing and so he never really jumped fully into it but uh, he started you know he, he he did what he could he started smoking cigarettes he started hanging out with the cooler kids <laughs> he did Good. what he could <laughs> he started smoking cigarettes yeah you know, he's that... growing up <laughs> right yeah yeah he well, would do what i can he would find sears catalogs he'd take him out into the shack by himself and you know he he enjoyed touching himself he learned <laughs> ah the sears catalogs uh-huh uh-huh. In the Moore family home? <laughs> no, you would go to his shack and eat. Ah, thank God. Yes. Thank God. That's, that's, that's that, 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 is, that is genial. Of <laughs> the the <laughs> whack shack. <laughs> oh, Jesus, I got a steamer. Oh, I better boy. head down to the shack. <laughs> oh, boy. This full-page ad of this vacuum cleaner is really getting my juices flowing. <laughs> you could, you could, I, I tell you, you could, you could suck up a bunch of dirt with that Hoover. <laughs> Make yourself a millionaire. Jeez, it's getting me so hot, I might freeze to death. <laughs> and so it was good with the Moore family. He had a good time, but the Moores, uh, eventually, uh, around 1928, they decided they were going to move to Arizona. Mm. Uh, but before they did, they took Woody to see his mother. Oh, in the loony bin. It was, it was 1928. He was 16. He he hadn't seen her in, in a while. <laughs> she was making a big breakfast. <laughs> well, <laughs> just everything on the floor. Stabbing cereal. <laughs> and when he got there, the doctor said she was uh, suffering from a thing called Huntington's chorea. Uh, C-H-O-R-E-A. It was a nervous disease, a disease that slowly breaks down your nerves, and then slowly every part of your body just stops working. Oof. And he said they looked each other in the eye, and she didn't even recognize him. Wow. He was 16. And so when the Moors left, he decided, well, I'll go somewhere, too. He had some friends, uh, you know, south, uh, south of there, uh, he, so he headed there. And he, as he was traveling, he would spend time in hobo camps, and he'd meet migrants, and, and they would tell wild stories to him. They had fun names, and they would sing, and... Around this time, he got a letter from his uh, his dad in Pampa, and the bunch of family was in Pampa, so he decided to go there, and that's where he met his uncle Jeff, which was uh, Charlie's half brother, his, his uncle, right? Uh, and his uncle was his uh, character; he was a fiddler and guitar player, very good singer, and uh, very much like Charlie, he learned fingerprinting through the mail. He graduated from Doctor Tarbell's Chicago School of Magic. 
Ah, oh, the esteemed institution. Well, mm-hmm. uh, the School of Magic was it was a, it was a, a volume course. It was like sixty six courses. Uh, a couple weeks before Houdini died, he, Houdini was approached by the same people to do a, a magic course, and he said no. And this other person, Doctor Tarble, took it, and and it became the you know if you wanted to learn magic, you would send off, and they would yeah. send you books. Yeah. And so Uncle Jeff was a magician and a, a guitar player and a fiddler and. Uh, he, you know, and it was exciting for Woody to be a part of some sort of, a, a, you know, musical gang almost. Sure. And so he, when he was there in Pampa, he would draw cartoons, and he became locally well known for his artistic ability. A local quote unquote drugstore, mm. which was actually a front for uh, booze. Ah, pro- was this during Prohibition? Yeah. So uh, what would happen is Woody would work the soda pop stand, but if a customer came in and put a dollar in a hat. Then they they would get a shot of Jake, as they called it, ah. which was basically just moonshine, right? A little magic trick of their own. <laughs> but uh, Woody was a good artist, and he uh, he he uh, he was a good painter, and so he painted. It was Harris Drug, and he painted the uh, the the sign for Harris Drug, and the sign was so good it went unchanged for forty eight years after that, really, until nineteen seventy seven. Wow! And when he was working there, he found a guitar in the back of the store. And uh, he would go hang out with Uncle Jeff, and Uncle Jeff wouldn't really teach him, but he would just play, and Woody would try to keep up. And uh, but while he was at Harris Drug, uh, uh, there's a, a black shoe shiner next door that would come by and play some blues for Woody, and uh, in return for a couple of shots of Jake. And he, he it, it, among his family, he decided to he would he would give high school another try. And he became obsessed with reading. And he would just go to the library and just read everything. The, the librarian said that his name was written on every book in the library. Hmm. Wow. And he, he read so much psychology that he even wrote his own psychology book. And the, library, the librarian was, uh, was so impressed with it, she put it on the shelf. For real? <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. And that's where it stayed until the librarian left. Another librarian came in and threw in the trash immediately. <laughs> this is just a bunch of fucking breakfast recipes. <laughs> <laughs> they all taste like shit. <laughs> it's, all, it's all shells. It's the fuck stab eggs. <laughs> Floor bacon with knives sucks. <laughs> Poached oatmeal? And uh, 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 boneless, skinless daughter. (laughs) (laughs) Serve chilled. (laughs) Boneless. That's so bad. And so around this time, uh, Norbell, his mother, she died, and Charlie decided it was time to remarry. And he had been writing to this uh, with this woman uh, uh, in the the eastern part of the United States, and she said she was a nurse. And Charlie was like, "Great, a nurse." And she showed up. I could use one of those. <laughs> she showed up, and she was actually uh, quote unquote psychic. Mm-hmm. And so she would uh, she would work out of uh, the back house where Charlie lived as a, as the local psychic, and Dude. she would claim to cure cancer. Everybody, and... every single person <laughs> yes. is like is like a fucking like like somebody you would hire out of the back of a comic yeah. book. Yeah. That's how they and met. Every fucking are you are you fucking there is a, you know there's, there's like a letter thing. You send off a letter. Someone's like they put it. You put an ad in the paper. Say I'm looking for a man to write a letter with, yeah, and then yeah. you do it. Oh, wow. Oh, man, that's so crazy. Nurse. <laughs> I'm a nurse of the future. <laughs> She's an alumnus of Dr. Tarbell's Magic <laughs> Academy as well. 
And uh, and so the, before they be, right before she showed up to, to for Charlie to remarry, they they took this trip to an old rumored Guthrie silver uh, mine that they had discovered. And they went out, and they didn't find the silver, but it was a fun family trip for the boys to go out and play some music and, and, and you know, live off the land. And, and then there was this one night where the local rancher came over, had slaughtered a pig, and, and, and gave it to him. And then he hung the pig in a tree and said, oh, well, just wait, you're, you're going to love this. And then that night, all of these wild animals came and just scared the shit out of him to the point where they all hid in the shack and just could hear animals growling. And it was a total failure of a trip, except for the building, the camaraderie. And there's a, I, I've never quite figured this out. Uh, uh, Joe Klein, who writes the definitive biography on Guthrie, he wrote, this trip would haunt Rudy, Woody for the rest of his life. And I'm not really sure what he means. So hopefully someone else can tell me what that means. But also, so they get back into town and Woody, he forms a band with his friend Matt Jennings and this guy named Cluster Baker, because that's what you named people back then. <laughs> and they called themselves the Corn Cob Trio, and they weren't getting a lot of work immediately because around this time, jazz and, and orchestral music was the big thing. And there wasn't really, people weren't huge on fiddle and guitar until, well, part of this was because record, record executives, there weren't any records of this, because record executives figured that uh, blacks and hillbillies wouldn't buy records, so they wouldn't put out records for blacks and hillbillies. Right. But then the radio changed all that. Mm-hmm. And uh, around 1927, the, the Carter family was discovered. And they were played on the radio all the time. And they, sound a, they sounded like this. This is a Carter family song. It's their first hit. Very simple. Another big hit on the radio at that time was Jimmy Rogers, who who was you know this kind of uh, he was singing like California where the water tastes like wine. He was uh, he was the most popular cowboy of the day, and he sounded like this: Hot nuts. <laughs> He's not wrong. That is great shit. And so Jimmy Rogers was one of the first musical influences of Woody's life. And then, you know, the Carter family and, you know, Uncle Jeff. And and so around this time, now the Corn Cop Trio was starting to get some work. They were playing shows and 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 Woody enjoyed the experience with the crowds. And he was a little weird, and, and but he was fun. And his best friend, Matt Jennings, said he, Woody had a, had a very, he had no sense of perspective on things like time and money and planning. You know, but he was completely aloof, but also completely aware. So he would play the fool, but he was, it wasn't like he was an idiot. He knew what he was doing. Like Charlie Chaplin. Very much. And Cluster Baker tells this story that he said would make him laugh for the rest of his life. And and Woody's painting a sign with a very, it's a sign that says sugar on it. And the S on it is very abstract. (laughs) And and this guy comes up and he goes, Woody, uh, he says, Woody, that don't look anything like an S. Can't you paint no better than that? And so Woody's on the ladder, and he looks at the S, 
He scratches his head, and he looks at the S, he looks at the guy, he looks at the S, and he goes, well, how'd you know it was an S? <laughs> Very good, Woody. Very good. And now Woody's in his early 20s, and uh, he courts Matt Jennings' younger sister, Mary. And uh, they got married in 1933. She, He was 21. She was 16. And their honeymoon was spent with Uncle Jeff and some family on a traveling show in, in Texas. Jeff would do magic. And Woody would play guitar and the harp and spoons, and he would tell jokes. Or he'd do that chalk trick, that drawing trick, where you draw something one way, then you flip the board over, and it looks like something else. Ah, classic. And then the 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 wife of the man who ran the show, she ran off with a traveling uh, some circus guy, and uh, so Party. that was the end of the show. <laughs> hey, you're not a guy; you're a bearded lady. <laughs> you haven't lived. <laughs> And uh, so they all went back to Tampa, and Woody kept drawing and reading, and the Corn Cop Trio was getting some more work. They even played, uh, they even got some live radio play. He was part of this band that the Chamber of Commerce formed. They'd do hoedown songs. You know, Wait, we, they all went back to Tampa? The whole family went back, yeah. Okay. And so, no, Pampa, Pampa. Where yeah, Pampa, yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. Tampa. I was like, Tampa? No, because that was also like a circus thing, yeah, too. I was like, true. what are they, chasing that guy down? And so in uh, in 1935, Woody, he, he, during these hoedowns, you know, part of that you, you you make up a verse on the spot, and he was incredibly good at that. And and he started writing some of those down. And in 1935, he wrote his own book called Alonzo M. Zilch's own collection of original songs and ballads. And it really wasn't too much. You'd be like Alonzo M. Zilch. It's one of those things I think where. You you're you're proud of your work, but you also want to step back just in case people right, don't like it. Right, right, oh, right, right. You don't want to put from the author of Breakfast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but he was clever. He had this one. One of them was called. One of the songs was Cowboys Philosophy, and a verse said at the end of the song, it said, "There ain't no fancy doctors here to bind the cowboy's hurt. He just wars that it at the water hole, and then we dry it on his shirt." Mm. And he started reading more philosophy. He was even doing yoga and meditation. What? Jesus. Uh, he read this book called The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Yeah. And it was all about, uh, every chapter was about some like love or something else. And it was, it was a spiritual book. And he started putting out ads as a divine healer. And he would do consultation. But he, would he? But he would, people would show up at his little shack. He had this 10 by 30 shack with Mary. This, what? this shack smells like nut. <laughs> And people would show up for healing and consultation, but he would never charge them. Oh. And he would just give them basic advice like, you know, common sense stuff. <laughs> Get your shit together, pal. <laughs> you want some bacon on a skewer? <laughs> now get out of here so I can whack it. <laughs> First day here or whatever. I don't care. I'm Dr. Alonzo P. Zilch Esquire. <laughs> All right, tell your friends. <laughs> And then in 1935, uh, there was a little more dust in there than there used to be. Ooh, sounds like money. <laughs> the farmers, uh, they had, the farmers had a drought. It hadn't rained in four years there. Mm. And Highway 66, which was just south of the town, was filled with migrants. And then on April 14th, 1935, there was the Great Dust Storm. It lasted 35 minutes. Temperature dropped 50 degrees, and humidity dropped to 10 percent. Animals. Animals would animals would suffocate to death. There was so much dust. Fuck! Birds would fall out of the sky from all the dust. Yeah. Uh, here's Woody uh, describing it himself. 
We all sat there. We had seen dust storms of every other different color, flavor, description, style, fashion, shade, design, model. Anyway, I remember the particular <laughs> evening of April the 14th, 1935, that this dust storm here blowed up. I was standing, a whole bunch of us were standing, just outside of this little town here that you see. And so we watched the dust storm come up like the Red Sea closing in on the Israel children. Anyway, we stood there and watched the son of a gun come up. And I'm telling you, it got so black when that thing hit, we all run into the house. And all the neighbors had all congregated in different houses around over the neighborhood. We sat there in a little old room, and it got so dark that you couldn't see your hand before your face. You couldn't see anybody in the room. You could turn on an electric light bulb, a good, strong electric light bulb in a little room, and that electric light bulb hanging in the room looked just about like a cigarette a burning. And that was all the light that you could get out of it. Damn. And uh, Terrifying. Yeah. It's a biblical <laughs> shit. shit. Yeah, well, just uh, like... Getting all of these real children. <laughs> <laughs> and so Woody was starting to uh, get annoyed in the town. It was he, he was still making... He was actually making really good money. Because there was this rich man in town that every night the rich man uh, would commandeer a police car, go pick up Woody, and have Woody <laughs> sing him songs throughout the night as he paid him. <laughs> Sorry, officer. This is official rich guy business. <laughs> pretty much what it was. <laughs> Here's the siren coming. Oh, fuck, not tonight. Oh, uh, no, it's not. No, it's just my friend. And Shit. <laughs> come up with a song. Oh. That same year, uh, Woody and... Woody and, and Mary, they had their first kid. Woody was 23. They had a kid named Billy Jean. And suddenly the shack was a little too small, and Woody was hanging out. He was drinking more. Mm. And he felt like he had done everything he could in Pampa, but he would come home drunk a lot. And... Uh, he had this song that he wrote that someone gave him an idea for during that dust night, and he would come home and just waking up the whole neighborhood just singing this song. So long, it's been good to know you. So long, it's been good to know you. So long, it's been good to know you. This dusty old dust is a And so I think the writing was on the wall at that point. <laughs> oh, oh, that he's, that he's going to find yeah. a new shack? Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. So he started taking small trips. He'd go to Texas and try to hang, hang out with family or some friends at some point. And then he would, uh, he would ride the rail. He would stay in hobo camps. But he, because he had a guitar, the hobos loved having him around. For someone to play some music. And they'd always come up to him and say, hey, do you know this song? And he'd say no. And they'd go, oh, I'd love to teach you this song. And so everywhere he went, he'd learn a new song, and he'd play for these small crowds, something to ease the time. And uh, he wasn't really great at playing the guitar or even singing, but there was a, he had a great style and energy, and people always appreciated and enjoyed it. <laughs> and so he'd travel, he'd get busted. You know, Sometimes he'd get arrested just so he could sleep under a roof for a night. Oh, One God. point he traded his sweater just for a plate of beans. <laughs> a plate, <laughs> a plate of beans. Plate. He, uh, you know, he, 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 was he, that in the ad that the second volume of his <laughs> philosophy book? <laughs> uh, uh, he, he would, uh, he would find a bum friend. They would go to a town. He'd play at a bar all night for some money and you know some free food for the band. Uh, one time, you know, he uh, 
he got kicked out of a town. He had to he had to huddle underneath an overpass with a lumberjack just to stay warm. And he got into California, and he never expected. <laughs> there was more. It was any more than one lumberjack. There was many lumberjacks. Yeah, I bet. Uh, it's so, uh, oh, fuck, so, I tell you, it was so, so cold hungry. I had to huddle with a lumberjack. <laughs> colder than my burnt dead sister out here. Oh man, I'm so hungry. Can I give you my shirt, Mister? <laughs> and uh, so he he comes over to California, and what blew him away in California was the bigotry, not racial bigotry, but bigotry against the migrants. The Okies. Yeah. Really? Interesting. And they found out, anytime someone found out they was, he was an Okie, you get run out of town. Uh, it was, I mean, there was racism, too. I mean, without <laughs> oh, there was also the racism. Let's yeah. not forget that. Right, right, right. It wasn't just cultural bigotry. But also they were like, oh, what are you, a fucking magician? Yeah. You Okie motherfucker? No, uh, one time he, I told he, stories. Get the fuck out of here! He got into Santa Fe, and he was doing this sign painting job, and someone came up, and they're like, why are you doing that? He's like, oh, I did it for the money. And they said, well, you, you know why he wouldn't, you know why that job was available? Because he wouldn't hire any black folks. And all the all the other people who he, who asked to, who wanted the job, they asked for too much money, and so what he, he threw the sign down, and then all the, he got he basically he got roughed up by a whole group of people who realized he wouldn't do this job for dirt cheap. They all beat him up, and he ran out of town. Huh. And instead, in these migrant camps, he he heard about the IWW, the International Workers of the World, mm. the Wobblies, and yes. all of these song. There was this, these new songs coming in from this guy named Joe Hill. Hey, we hey. briefly touched on. And so on his way back, you know, Woody, he joined the IWW and he got back to uh, uh, Pampa uh, where he saw Mary and then suddenly she was pregnant again. Hmm. And then he went back to California. Oh. <laughs> 1937, he's back to California. The, uh, the police barricades are down. The police would, they would stop you before this. They would stop you, any, any migrants at the border. And if the migrants didn't have money to pay for their way in California, they would, wouldn't let them in. And, uh, and it's 37, he comes back to California, and the first day in L.A., he's walking down the, in downtown, and a dollar f- just falls off a roof in front of his feet. And he said, this is going to be different here. And right now in L.A., in this time in 37, Gene Autry is the toast of the town, mm-hmm. the singing cowboy. You know, but he was like a pop cow, you know, you know popular yeah. music cowboy, yodels and all that shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Woody meets up with his cousin Jack Guthrie here, and they start doing cowboy shows where, you know, real Woody is an authentic, uh, look at this this dirty pig pen type character, you know? <laughs> I bet Gene Autry didn't have no sister on fire freezing. <laughs> I dare Gene Autry to sleep underneath the overpass with the brownie man. <laughs> He doesn't like being the little spoon, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but they're getting shows. Him and Jack, they're getting good work, and Jack talks their way onto the radio. Now they have a radio show. Mm. The, Oklahoma, the, uh, the Oklahoma and Woody show, it was called. It was on air, uh, it was a daily radio show, and then soon it was twice daily. And it was a big hit for the radio station. They were getting 300 letters from people a month. Wow. Jesus. And Woody was 25 now. And uh, Jack didn't think he was making enough money, so he left the show. But through Jack, Woody met this woman named Maxine Chrisman, and she joined the show. And uh, she had, she she was uh, she was more styled in the mountain type of music, uh, more really old school folk songs. And it became less cowboy music and more of these mountain songs. It was called uh, the Woody and Lefty Lou Show. 
and they were never rehearsed. They would just uh, Maxine would drive to the the, and they would they would just talk and sing on the way there. And then when they got to the stage, and they just continued doing that. And uh, it, it, you know, they'd read a letter. Woody would make up a story or a life lesson. He started doing this thing called corn pone philosophy. Oh boy, corn. Corn Pone. Pone. Pro- probably an idea he got from Mark Twain, who Mark Twain had this thing called Corn Pone Opinions. And it was this kind of like frontier philosophy. Mm-hmm. And the show was an even bigger hit with, uh, with Lefty Lou. And they would, now they're getting 450 letters a month. And they could hear it all the way into Pampa. He became, you know, a kind of celebrity in Pampa. His wife would hear him, and it, it would be amazing. And, and it, it, he, it was, he was becoming influential in a way. And what was the name of the, the show? The uh, Woody and Lefty Lou show or Lefty Lou and Woody uh-huh. show because Maxine became Lefty Lou. Right. Mm. And uh, it was a show was a big hit. But, you know, Woody would just pull out all these songs he knew. And sometimes they were insensitive. And one of them was called, I'll, I'll say, Black Person Blues. <laughs> Uh-huh. And so, you know, Woody, mm. Woody played this on the air once, and then uh, very shortly after, he got a letter from uh, this black college student who said, hey, I just want you to know that no respectable person would ever say that on the radio. And Woody read the letter on the radio, and he apologized, and then he went into his songbook, and he ripped out every song that had that word in it. Oh, good for him. And he also, you know, he also had a song called The Chinese and the Japs, which was, uh-huh. <laughs> which was he would later be horrified by it. But from this, he started doing more original songs. Oh, good. And so, so he started writing his own songs. Uh, he wrote this song called Philadelphia Lawyer after uh, a fan just sent out a letter uh, from the newspaper about this lawyer who was, who was killed in Las Vegas. And he discovered that he could just take anything and, and put words to it. And just put it, put these words to old music, and he had a song. Right. And so now he was writing he anything that came to his head, he could write a song. One day he was sitting on Jack Guthrie's porch, and the neighbor boy came up, and the neighbor boy said, "Where are you from?" And what he said, uh, "I was born in the Oklahoma Hills." And as soon as he said that, he had a song, and the song is called Oklahoma Hills. It was a country standard, and you've definitely heard of it. And uh, it was made famous by his. Uh, his cousin, Jack Guthrie. Many months has come and gone since I wandered from my home in those Oklahoma hills where I was born. Sounds like it's sung by the Munchkins from Oklahoma City. Yeah. lesson I have learned. Well, I feel like in those hills. But you listen to the chorus. This is a standard. Way down yonder in the Indian nation, you ride my pony on the reservation. Hills where I was born. That's great. Now we're down yonder. And uh, so he started getting more creative. He started writing more. He became the corn pone philosophy became a bigger thing. He he would talk for fifteen minutes at a time. Now he would say things like, uh, "I guess I didn't get so much in my head, but I've had less headaches of getting by with an empty one." Things like that, you know. And now they were getting 1,500 letters a month. Jesus. And the radio station was making a ton of bank. And so they offered him a one-year contract. He sent for his wife and kids. And uh, the wife and kids came in, and he was never really a good husband or father with them. (laughs) Oh, yeah, when he was singing so long, it's been good to know you to their faces. Yeah. And uh, But, yeah, because he liked the idea of people, but he was a little too young for the idea of a family, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, and uh, he got also got an offer to draw cartoons for a local newspaper. He became part of this uh, recall campaign for the governor. Holy shit! 
And uh, the newspaper hired him for cartoons. And they also said, hey, there's these migrant camps out uh, uh, in Northern California. Go out there and, and tell us what their lives are like. And so he's a reporter now? Now he's a reporter. And he goes out to these camps and he starts singing there. And all these people recognize him from the radio. And he was kind of a celebrity and hero to them. And he realized they weren't just traveling Okies anymore. You know, they were... They had settled. They were starving. They're kind of permanently homeless. Yeah. yeah. They're yeah. starving and they're angry. They're being beaten by these local hired goons. <laughs> I tried to paint a sign. They kicked the fuck out of me. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> what, what were the Okies in California? But they were the latest in the line of the Chinese and Japanese and Filipinos who were brought in to, yeah, to work the land as cheaply as possible and get the fuck out of there. And while he's in these camps, he hears this song that's been going around popularized by the Carter family. And it's called The World Is Not My Home, or Can't Feel at Home in This World. Uh-huh. And this is uh, from the sun. You're going to say the world is a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures and my hopes are all beyond the blue. For many friends and kindred have gone on before. And so when he heard that, he was like, but it, it pissed him off. He said, we're here now. What, what good is that? What good is, uh, is, 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 is the afterlife? Mm. Right, right. You can't be fucking saying the, the world is Elvira. <laughs> <laughs> you got to make now with yeah. the times, yeah. baby. Yeah. And so out, out of this anger to the same tune, Woody wrote his own song called I Ain't Got No Home. And this is the second verse from it. My brothers and my sisters are stranded on this road, a hot and dusty road that a million feet have trod. Rich man took my home and drove me from my door, and I ain't got no home in this world anymore. It's a little different. A little right. different. A little different. Uh, he's, he's fighting an edge. And he starts, uh, he goes back to L.A., he starts reading the People's World, the communist newspaper, and uh, because the communists at the time, the communists were the only party in America that was about uh, racial integration and workers' rights. Right. Feeding people. Yeah. All right. Yeah, the Democrats yeah, yeah. and Republicans were not about that. Right. But his father was about stamping out socialism. Yes. He did while, not... he, while he had nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? What? But he starts reading The People's World, and uh, one of the correspondents had a, a show on the radio station Woody had. Or Woody was on, and, and Woody bumps into him. Woody said, hey, man, I love your stuff. I got a radio show. You should come by. And so this man was named Ed Robin, and he, he comes by, and he hears Woody sing this song called Mr. Tom Mooney is Free. And Tom Mooney was this guy who was arrested for, uh, he, was, he was definitely uh, f- framed for a, a, a murder he didn't commit. And uh, he, was, he was eventually released, and his release was a, a big part of this uh, communist uh, uh, movement. And so Woody just wrote this song, and he's, he, he original song, and, and sang it. And Ed Robin was so impressed, he invited him uh, to his house. And, and he, he started looking through his songbook, and he's like, You're, this is amazing. He was, so he said, I have a Communist Party rally. You should come sing at it. 
And so there's this story of Woody at this rally, and it's a fucking long ass rally. And so like, there's all these speakers. Because everyone gets a turn. Yeah, everybody gets a turn. <laughs> and so there's the you know there's the the, the local uh, head of the Communist Party speaker, and then there's a local teacher speaker, then there's a local uh, preacher speaking. And there's a, you know, and, and at this point, Woody's he's he's on stage with all of these people, and he fell, falls asleep. <laughs> And then no gods, no masters, baby. Let Rita have a turn. <laughs> and so he, they they rouse him awake, and he sings "Mr. Tom Money is Free," and he just destroys the place, and he becomes the 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 sound, the musical sound of the Communist Party immediately after that. Really, of the local, you know, these local folks. And so he was started playing all these Communist Party shows, and he would play the shows. He would make some money. And then when he was done with the shows, he'd come back to L.A., he'd go to Skid Row, and he would just stand around and play music and drink huh. for the rest of the night. Wow, an actual Make this communist. A real communist party. <laughs> hey, we're all going to get laid. <laughs> to each is neat. <laughs> and he would come off like this. Hey, this guy came twice. <laughs> Kill him. Hold on, hold on. It was spontaneous, not busted. <laughs> I was wondering where you go. I couldn't control it. It's a comrade. <laughs> My sister actually froze to death of spontaneous combustion. Uh, and so uh, he, he asked Ed Robin, he said, Ed, you know, could I write for the People's World? And Ed Robin was like, I, 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 can you? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Can you? And, uh, Sorry, have, you, I? have you read that reading book yet? <laughs> and so he, 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 he submitted some writing and they're like, this is amazing. But they never they never paid him or like made sure he was a communist. But they're just like, this is <laughs> total communist fashion. Well, yeah. and, and, and when Woody was asked later about this life, he called himself a, a communist. Right. He was a man of the people. He wasn't oh. a communist. He was a communist. Oh my god! But this was right after Grapes of Wrath, and uh, and everybody was like, "Oh, a true, authentic Oki." Uh-huh. Uh, but it, he, he had his article called "Woody Says," and it'd just be a, you know more corn pone philosophy. And you talk about deep how, thoughts by well, Woody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, you know, if it's got a hole, <laughs> fuck it. <laughs> Yeah, that's where I was going. Yeah, but you yeah. talk about how it's like, oh, if, if a banker, you know, if, if the Wall Street guys, uh, if, <laughs> if if they steal money, it's not a big deal. But if if the if the uh, you know some guy comes into town steals it, and then all of a sudden right. he said robbery is just a chapter in etiquette. You know, he said oh. he and he said I ain't a communist necessarily, but I've been in the red all my life. <laughs> ah, very nice. Very good, <laughs> like his ver- an early version of King's things. <laughs> if you ask me, the Titanic was a national tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> Papa, you're on the air. <laughs> and so uh, L.A. was craving an authentic Oki, and he met up with this man named Will Gear, who would later become Grandpa Walton on The Waltons. Oh, and a uh, show I never watched, but uh, yeah, they had a John know. Boy. They, they did. They did have a John Boy. boy. It was because of that that people in Ireland, when I worked there, started calling me John Boy. And then I was like, that's so fucking creepy. I'm going to start calling myself that sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) John Boy. It's me, John Boy. Hey, it's you. I'm here, John Boy. Tell me goodnight. (laughs) I'm watching you sleep. And so, so they would go to these these parties where where Will Gear would put on a show, and then they would bring out the Oki to sing for him. And it, it was 
It, Bring out the Yoki. <laughs> Yoki sleeping. We'll wake him up. <laughs> and it was all fun. And but then one day, Will and his wife took Woody to a migrant camp. And because Woody didn't, you know, he he was like that Charlie, that Chaplin esque thing. And then they took him to a migrant camp, where he completely just they saw how natural he was in the moment. Mm. And uh, they said, you know, there was this moment where they bring him out and, and Woody is out there and he, he starts rambling and he says, how many of you from Texas? You know, well, I've been in the panhandle you know, where the wheat grows and the oil flows and blah, blah. And, you know, you walk farther in Texas, uh, in Texas, you walk farther for, and travel less. You see, the, see more cows and less milk, more trees and less shade, more rivers and less water, more fun, less money than anywhere else. And then he tucked his cigarette into uh, his guitar, and, uh, still smoldering, tilted his chin up and he began to sing. And uh, Joe Klein writes that he was like a visitor from Celtic mythology. Mm. You, you know, just this, this true something out of uh, uh, just something unseen, something that was just pure and beautiful, mm. huh? And so he's perfect there. And but then shortly after this, Will moves to New York City, and and uh, and Woody he he struggles with the radio. They 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 don't want him. Uh, Stalin signed a pact with uh, with Hitler. And Uh-oh. so some, suddenly communism isn't so looking so cool anymore. Party's <laughs> over. Pretty much. And so Woody starts battling with the, the radio station, and eventually something happens, and he's fired. Ah, I said communist. Com- <laughs> not communist. What, do you think I'm crazy? <laughs> communist. My mother's a crazy one. You're crazy. I'm not crazy. So he goes back to crazy. Pampa. And uh, but he decides on his way back to Pampa. He said, well, "Well, if Will's going to New York, I'm going to New York." So he goes back to Pampa, and it's you know when you're living in L.A. and all these things and the bright lights and all that, you're having a great time. You go back to the shack, sure, the ten by thirty shack with the two kids and not uh, low stains. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so he take a theater in here as soon as he could. <laughs> as soon as he could, he left, and he he rides up, and he's just he he has the worst trip up north new york you could ever have at one point he's, he's walking through uh, he's, he's, he's hitchhiking through a snowstorm and it's just freezing everywhere and uh, as he keeps going north he keeps hearing this song this irving berlin song made uh, which which was then being sung by kate uh, whatever the, what's her name the one that fucking yankees sing in seven things stretch like a bunch of, bunch of fucking idiots <laughs> uh irving berlin song god bless america uh-huh. and he keeps hearing this and he keeps hearing this and he keeps hearing this and he's just He's dying, you know. He's he's struggling. He gets to New York. And he stays with Will Greer, Will Gear, and he's just completely dirty and dusty. And he's not showered. He's not bathing at all. And he's sitting around. So one day, Will's taking a bath, and Woody's sitting in the bathroom. Will just takes Woody and just picks him up and just throws him in the tub. And Woody's like upset about him, but 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 Will gives him a a, a slow gin fizz as it was. Uh. And Woody was like, "All right." So then he would only bathe if they gave him a slow gin fizz. Oh God! And so he stays there a couple nights before he like he 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 didn't wear out his welcome, but he 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 got the he got the idea, and he started bumming around, and he he stayed in this. Uh, he ended up at this place called Hanover House. It was a flea bag hotel in the corner of Sixth Ave and Forty Second Street. And he was just uh, tired and lonely and angry, and he couldn't get that God Bless America out of his head. And so one day, he just sees, he's there, and he just writes down, just clean piece of paper, no edits. He writes this song called, uh, 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 Fuck America! <laughs> that's, that's what I imagine you're gonna say. <laughs> you know what, man? I've been hearing this song everywhere I go. And let me tell you, fuck it! God smack America! <laughs> 
Oh, God smack America. <laughs> at, at the top of the page, he wrote, God blessed America, and then he wrote the first verse. And he wrote, this land is your land, this land is my land. From California to Staten Island, he crossed that Staten Island, and he wrote New York. He wrote, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, God blessed America for me. And then right there, he wrote five more verses, and he signed it. At the bottom, he said, all you can write is what you see. He signed it, Woody G, February 23, 1940. Then he put it away and just completely forgot about it. Huh. Wow, really? Mm-hmm. Just another song he wrote. Damn. And then on March 3rd, 1940, Will Gear organizes the Grapes of Wrath evening. It's a, it's a review of sorts, ballad singers and folk dancers. And Sounds led, like a party. Basically, Lead Belly is playing, Aunt Molly Jackson, hey. Alan and Bess Lomax are there. Hell yeah. And, uh, yeah, Alan Lomax, I don't know if you're familiar with Alan Lomax. No. Alan Lomax was 23, but he was already a giant in the folk world. His dad was John Lomax, who was a collector of cowboy songs. Uh, one of his prize collections was uh, Home on the Prairie. Uh, and, and John Lomax would take his son, Alan, they would go south during the Depression. They'd drag around this 350-pound recording machine, and they would go prison to prison looking for work songs. He was a sound catcher. He would collect songs, and they discovered Lead Belly through this. Really? Lead Belly, a man so good, he was pardoned twice for murder yeah. because he was such a good musician. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm in it again. I better yeah. write another hit. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I'm not going to get myself out of this one, Lead Belly. And by now, Woody is so good at his shtick that this Grapes of Wrath night, uh, there, there is is uh, there was a play for Grapes of Wrath, and so Tobacco Road it was called, and the set was behind him on that night. And uh, Woody goes out; it's his turn to sing. He 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 ambles out. He tilts his cap up. He 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 tilts his head up. He squints at the audience. Audience, and he goes. It, it, Joe Kleinwright says, as if he'd wandered in by accident, but didn't mind hanging around, singing a few songs as long as he was there. <laughs> And then he did his corn pony thing. He said he was happy to be there to, to perform in a Rapes of Graft show. Uh. <laughs> Speaking of grafts, you know, my sister died of uh, melting away her skin. But isn't it funny? She, she died of hypothermia. Yeah. We, tried to, we tried to trade her for leather. <laughs> <laughs> and rapes of graft? Rapes of graft. You know, you flip, you flip Communist things Communist rapes of graft. Me not smart. Me speak good one day. <laughs> he wrote that book about reading from back to front. <laughs> and so as soon as he sang, Alan Lomax shit himself. What? I mean, he didn't literally shit himself. Oh. But he said he's been searching. Him and his dad have been searching for the country for all of these folk songs. And they're all secondhand. And then suddenly right now is the authentic thing. Right, a guy doing it. A guy doing it. Him who doing it on his own, right? Doing it originally, and he's from Oklahoma. He's this dust bowl baby. All of these things, and so Lomax immediately brings Woody to his Washington D.C. house just to hang out and read through his books and play music. And Woody would just spend all day playing these Carter records. He just play the same song over and over and just driving people crazy. <laughs> and he'd eat over the sink, and uh, he would sleep on the floor. And he like, because just because he said he didn't want to get soft, he said, "I'm a road man." Oh, God. Whether that was real or not, whether he was believing his own myth or not. Uh, but in order to keep him busy, Lomax was like, Can you write a few paragraphs about, his, about your life. And when Lomax came back that day, Woody had written 23 pages. Huh. Oh. And Lomax read it, and he thought it, was the, he thought it was the American Ulysses. Really? He thought it was Joyce's Ulysses. It, it, it was just 
unreadable, unintelligible, <laughs> hard to understand. <laughs> but shorter. <laughs> Did he talk about farts? <laughs> that was James Joyce, right? That was James Joyce. But what he brings in all of his all of his songs, and so Lomax has been searching forever, and now an entire history of folk music has just ended up in his lap. Mm-hmm. And so he brings Woody to the Library of Congress, where where Lomax and his dad were the the folk music archivers. Huh. And uh, he brings him to the Library of Congress to record. What kind of year are we talking about right now? This is 1940. Okay, okay. And uh, he spends three days recording at the Library of Congress, and uh, he talks about his life. And uh, this is what he said about his mom and the fires. Don't know whether it's worth talking about or not. I never do talk it much. My uh, 14-year-old sister either set herself afire or caught a fire accidentally. There's two different stories got out about it. Anyway, she was having a little difficulty with her school work and she had to stay home and do some work and she caught a fire while she was doing some ironing that afternoon on the old kerosene stove. It was highly unsafe and highly uncertain in them days and this one blowed up, caught her a fire and she run around the house about twice before anybody could catch her. The next day she died. <clears throat> and my mother that was a little bit too much for her uh, nerves or something. I don't know exactly how it was. But anyway, my mother died in the insane asylum at Norman, Oklahoma. Then uh, about that same time, my father mysteriously, for some reason or other, caught a fire. There's a lot of people say that he set himself fire. Others say that he caught a fire accidentally. I always will think that he'd done it on purpose because he'd lost all his money. Damn. So you can already, he's already mythologizing about himself. Right. But, you know, this was something that, this is the first time he ever really talked about it. And, yeah. you, you know, changing the story. And you can even hear him break up a little bit when he discusses it. Yeah. Uh, but but Lo, one of the reasons Lomax was recording for him, because Lomax had an idea for a radio show. And this was kind of like a test run for this radio show he was going to do. And uh, Lomax brings him back up to New York. And uh, the radio show is a hit. It becomes a huge thing. And... Uh, and Woody is starting to get big now. And New York was a communist town at that time. In many is it ways. kind of that format as well, where it's kind of like explanation song, mm-hmm. explanation background, yeah, etc.? So exactly. Okay. L- Lomax is like, here's the thing. And then here's someone to play the song. Here's right. another thing. Here's, yeah. And uh, if you're just joining us here, uh, Lomax and friends, we've got uh, Woodrow Guthrie here. His sister may or may not have set herself on fire and died freezing to death. Woodrow, won't you? Join us. My oh, sister is... <laughs> my sister's running around the house twice so fast we can't catch her. No. That 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 explanation is like blaming it on her. Yeah, she, yeah, she, yeah. She was too fast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very the, uncertain. The, the, the flames. Safe the flames. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but CBS Radio picks up the show and, and they start putting Woody on other shows and they're paying him good money. Uh, for, the, for the Lomax show, he, he, he makes $200 for the first show. Just as a two hundred dollar contract, and uh, it's big money to him. And then they they ask him to just you know you go into a show and you play one song. Uh, this is a, a, a Sunday morning variety show hosted by Burgess Meredith. Hey, no shit, yeah. the Penguin, yeah. the and, Penguin, and uh, the and trainer from, of the of the 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 boxer, mm-hmm. yes, the, the, yes. the boxer, yes, yes, yes. yes. the boxer that. Uh, well, I mean, if you read the book about boxing, you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> Would that come in the mail? Is that, <laughs> is that a course? Get up, you son of a bitch. Cause Mickey loves ya. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so he would go on. You go on a show like that. They give him fifty dollars to play one song. 
just huge money for him. Wow. And he, he started catching on with people of the town. And uh, what he says is, is now appearing in the Daily Worker. And uh, he was also he started being becoming a success with the ladies. Oh, because in New York he was the noble savage of sorts. Uh, sure, you know, names Woody. Why? Huh? Left wing women are like, here's 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 the man. Uh, here's the real man. This isn't a phony man of the. But he was also, you know, he was he he wasn't that tall. <laughs> he was dirty, but he was like incredibly lovable and goofy, and uh, he, he he would spend days with women. Loving them and then being mothered by them, and then he would just move on and, and then find. All right, that's enough of that. And they might, might, so might catch on fire. Yeah. So long, it's been good. To yeah. Know. yeah. Alan Lomax said, uh, "I think he worked his way through half the secretaries in the CBS building." Oh boy! And he uh, he never he didn't have a permanent residence for his first year there. He would stay with Lead Belly. He loved the man. He said about Lead Belly, "I heard Lead Belly say the other day, I woke up this morning and the blues was falling down like midnight rain, and Woody would just eat that up." Aww. And it's uh, adorable. It's pretty cute. <laughs> I love that. Uh, Lomax got Victor Records to record a two album, 12 record set of Woody's Dust Bowl ballads. It was supposed to be folk uh, material, but they also sold it to schools. Hmm. And uh, one night they asked for a song about the Grapes of Wrath in order to capitalize on the movie's success. And Woody, in one night with half a gallon of wine, he wrote the song called Tom Jode, a 17 verse ballad to the tune of John Hardy, which was also the tune of uh, Jesse James. Huh. And uh, he called it one of the best things he's ever done. And uh, then that May, he recorded at Victor Studios. Uh, he went through every song he knew. He was paid $300 for it. And for the record, he was given $400 in advance and 5% of royalties. He bought a Plymouth. And then him and uh, Pete Seeger, who he met through Woody uh, uh, Alan Lomax, uh, they went on a road trip. Uh-oh. And they took that Plymouth, and they drove down the United States across. They would pitch up hitchhikers. At uh, one point, they uh, picked, up this, uh, picked up this hitchhiker named Speedy Brooklyn, or Brooklyn Speedy, it was. Nah. And uh, they would go, and Brooklyn Speedy didn't have any legs. And so <laughs> anytime they needed gas money, Brooklyn said, hey, just leave me over here, and I'll have some gas money for you shortly. <laughs> and one time, Brooklyn Speedy goes to Pete Seeger. He goes, uh, Pete, I need some of this. I need this thing called Paragoric. It yeah. was a drinkable opium, basically. Mm-hmm. Oh my God! And yeah. he said, "Pete, uh, here's what you do: go to the pharmacy, tell them that your 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 new baby is is crying and it's sick and you don't know what to do, and uh, just use a fake name." And so Pete brings it back and he gives it to him, and uh, uh, Brooklyn Speedy drinks the whole thing in one gulp, oh. <laughs> and, and just sits on the, the sidewalk. And, and Pete goes, "What does that What does that do to you?" And Brooklyn Speedy goes. I'm just sitting here, and the world's moving past me, going away. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, Let's they, keep this guy around. <laughs> yeah, that's what they should have done. As they would go around, they would uh, go to communist organizations, and they would sing for them. What kind of areas are they traveling through? Uh, they're going to Pittsburgh, uh, Ohio. Okay, northeast. Yeah, yeah, northeast, then down. Midwest. Yeah, yeah. and then they went, they went to Pampa. Mary's still living in that same shack. Oh, God. And uh, Pete's like, this is awkward. And to the point where Mary's mom comes over to Pete and goes, make that boy treat my my girl right. Oh. And so it's awkward for both of them. Pete Pete checks out. Woody checks out. He leaves him 300 bucks and checks out. And uh, he stops in Oklahoma. <laughs> they left Brooklyn here. A <laughs> <laughs> legless man. Mary, help me. Uh, he stops in Oklahoma. He picks up some organizers to bring him to New York City for the big Communist Party convention. And when they get back to New York City, Woody goes, eh, just take the car so you have something to get back with. And that car became the official car of the Oklahoma Communist Party. <laughs> wow. Plymouth. Mm-hmm. Huh. 
Uh, around now, Dust Bowl Ballads has been released. Uh, they didn't put out that many. Left-wing schools and summer camps are, are, are mainly using it. Woody thought it would be his big breakthrough. It wasn't. Um, but, however, you know, when, you, when, when, when it, you make kids listen to it, it becomes the, the mythology of the generation of radicals, you know, uh, who, who, are, who are coming of age. Sure. Uh, Alan Lomax gets another show on CBS. Woody gets on that. He's 28 now. He's making $150 a week. Mm. Now he's making he's he's working nightclub gigs. He meets this guy named Cisco Houston. They're very opposite. Cisco's a pretty boy from L.A., but he's a very good uh, high tenor singer. And he becomes a doorman at a burlesque house. And Woody, when Woody was done singing, they would, he would go up to Cisco and they would go carouse and uh, just go to go around and play music. Mm-hmm. And Woody's getting into songwriting more. He also becomes a good scriptwriter. He's writing on uh, the radio shows. He's even trying new things. Uh, on on his radio show, he does a thing on the anniversary of the Thirteenth Amendment. He decides to read the whole amendment on air huh. while being backed, oh, freedom. being backed by a gospel group singing "Oh Freedom." Oh my God! He reads the entire Thirteenth Amendment with this behind him. Oh my God! Dude, gospel's so dope. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. And now he's getting offers left and right to, to write original ballads for radio shows and sing his own songs. The Modell Tobacco Company offers him a hosting gig for a weekly CBS show called Pipe Smoking Time. Hey, all right. And now he's making 200 a week from them. And now he's making about $350 a week. So he sends for Mary and the kids. They arrive. And but he's just partying all night. They have they have this apartment and people are just coming over. Or they're knocking on the door at two in the morning. Say, is Woody there? I want to play some songs. Pipe smoking time. Pipe smoking time. <laughs> and, and around this time, uh, Pete Seeger and, and some of his friends are starting their own group, which would eventually become the Almanac Singers. And uh, and and one day Woody shows up at their house and he brings the wife and kids and uh, they're having a great time. So the wife and kids head home. And Woody takes the takes these uh, Pete Seeger and his friends, and he brings them up to this burlesque house where this weird look, this fancy looking doorman at a burlesque house uh, shakes Woody's hands, and then they just break out into song. And they're like, "This is Woody's the most authentic thing we've ever seen. This is amazing." Damn. But Woody couldn't handle the success that well. Uh, at one point in New York, a newspaper uh, they interviewed him, and they wrote an article about him called "Wrath Scrapes Turned to Wine." Mm-mm. And he felt this was uh, the story was a betrayal. Uh, it was evidence of his betrayal of of his authenticity. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, like selling out? Yeah. And so that Christmas Eve, him and Cisco go on a multi day bender. <laughs> and uh, booze, paragoric, <laughs> booze, booze, and women. Brooklyn's back. Speedy. Uh, New Year's Eve, he plays a, a benefit at Will Gear's house, where all these rich people are dressed up, and, and Woody just is just gets wasted and just sings with his eyes closed. He said he couldn't, he didn't want to open his eyes because all the well-dressed folks in white shirts and diamonds were blinding him. And uh, he drove back from there, drunk, speeding to New York City. He would slam his brakes on at every street corner in New York City, asking the pedestrians, "How do we get from here to the United States?" <laughs> uh, wow. And then when he, as soon as he got back to New York City, he mysteriously lost all of his radio shows, and uh, he took his family and left. Mysteriously? Well, the, he is, he, you know, one of those bah humbug things. You get in a fight because you're just angry about stuff, and you, uh, you head out. 
Uh, yeah. And uh, he took the family to D.C. to Lomax's. Lomax said, what are you doing here? And Woody said, oh, new car fever. And then that night, there's, there's, they're at Lomax's house. There's a giant rainstorm. Um, it's, it's so bad that when Mary's putting the kids to bed, the, 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 the windows in the house shatter. And then these people come over for a party. And oh, God. Mary's, Mary's biggest memory of the party is that during the, all this dancing, uh, a black woman starts dancing around her singing, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> oh. oh, wow. Shit. So they, uh, they, Woody drives until he collapses. They uh, eventually drive their way to uh, New York City. Or, I mean, uh, California. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, w- along the way, Woody's getting wasted here and there. Uh, they stop up in Juarez. Woody throws a brick. He's really drunk, throws a brick through a store window. Says it looks like a capitalist store to me. <laughs> Is it a store? <laughs> <laughs> they get kicked out of a bar in Juarez because he gets drunk and just puts his hand in the eggnog and starts wiping it over his face. I'm making breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> They get to L.A., and uh, he's not finding much work. Uh, he talks to Ed, Ed, Ed Robin, who's out, and in, in, uh, uh, in Ed Robin uh, puts him in touch with uh, uh, a man named, uh, was it, uh, Guster Von Frisch, who was uh, a movie maker of sorts. He had an idea uh, for a film of promoting the government's, uh, the, the, work, the works progress, or uh, the WPA. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were building all these dams in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and, you know, because Woody was just slumming around in L.A. He wasn't finding any work. He was with, he was just hanging out with his kids. He was having a great time with his kids for the first time in his life, just writing songs for him. Oh, that's cool. And uh, but they go up to the Pacific Northwest. They go up to Portland, and they didn't have a contract in place. There was a maybe contract in place, but Woody took his chance. He drove the kids up there. They arrived. The car is just torn to bits. Windows are broken. All the upholstery is torn out. Uh, they show up, all the kids spill out, these little blonde, oaky kids. And Woody spends the next 30 days in Portland there, uh, touring the government dams. And they gave him a, a one-month contract just just out of just, you know, like the nice thing to do. Okay. And it's the most productive month of his life. In 30 days, he writes 26 songs. Jesus. Uh, and, and some of them are some of his best songs. Roll on Columbia, the Grand Coulee Dam. Uh, some would say his his the greatest folk song ever written was the song Pastures of Plenty. Uh, this song right here. We work in your beet field till sundown tonight. Travel three hundred miles for the morning gets light. Arizona, California, we'll make all your crops. Then it's northward to Oregon to gather your hops. Strawberries, cherries, and apples are best in that land full of promise at the Pacific Northwest. Look down in the canyon and there you will see. Super soft. Grand coolie showers her blessings on me. Uh, so it's the most productive uh, month of his life. Uh, yeah. He writes some great songs. And then right before the month is over and he's about to, he doesn't know what the fuck to do, uh, Pete Seeger writes him and says, hey, the Almanacs, we're going to do a countrywide tour. So Woody uh, leaves, finds the first cattle car he can, and bums all the way back to New York City. Wow. 
They go on a countrywide tour. It's 1941. 2.3 million workers are on strike. Wow. The world, the, war, the United States has not yet joined the war, and yet all the war is ramp. The, the all the machinery is ramping up. And around this time, all the, there was a thing stamped on machinery called "This Machine Kills Fascists." Oh yeah, yeah. And Woody took that and he stamped it on his own guitar. Oh, yes. And so the Almanacs had a pretty successful tour. They wrote a song in Pittsburgh called Pittsburgh is Smoky Old Town. They were really good to write together. They're all very thoughtful and creative and and fast. And they all worked in different ways and sang in different tones and wrote in different ways. And they were very good together. (laughs) Excuse me. (laughs) But Woody was also, uh, the more they toured, the more problems he created. Uh, one time he was, uh, 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 he was at a rich woman's house, um, he, wait, was Threw it? a brick at her. Looks like a capitalist whore to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> Throwing bricks at things you think look capitalist. Such an indeterminable thing. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like a capitalist duck to me. One of the almanacs, Moe Lample, he invited Woody. He, 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 there's this rich woman in Milwaukee that Lample wanted to sleep with, and, and he invited Woody to the house, and uh, Woody just spent the whole time just uh, stealing stuff from her. <laughs> <laughs> and then they, they, they were at this CIO uh, uh, party, and Woody kept trying to goose the CIO leader's wife. Goosing is when you pinch someone in the ass. Mm. Uh, so, and and he had to. Uh, they had to drag him out of the party and throw him in the car, and then tie ropes around the car so he couldn't get out. Oh my God! Uh, they end. They end up in L.A. Uh, Woody does some shows. Mary arrives. They have a fight, and she fig- she's like, "This is done." She takes the family to El Paso, Oof. and that's the end of that marriage. Yikes. And then the group kind of falls out. It's been tough. They break up. And then uh, uh, Woody, uh, around this time, uh, Sophie Maslow, this dancer from the Martha Graham Company, she's been dancing to the the Dust Bowl ballads. She's been writing writing dances to them. And uh, and Woody just couldn't, he couldn't work with dancers because he didn't actually follow time, you know? Right. Um, and so the show never goes off. And then around this time, the Pearl Harbor happens. The United St- er, and and the U.S. has to. And the Almanacs can't do these communist, these union songs anymore. Now they have to do war songs. Right. Oof. But they're very quick at them, and they start singing songs like "Round and Round Hitler's Grave," and it beca- <laughs> uh, they, uh, they were the first group to 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 make war songs. That's how quick they were. Wow. And so they appear on this uh, radio program called This Bring Is... Bring back that uh, Japs and Chinese song. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, they appear on this uh, radio program called This Is War, and it was simultaneously broadcast on all four networks. That's how oh, important this was. Oh, shit. And they play their song round and round, Hitler's Grave, and it's a huge hit. And they're for three days, they're the biggest group in the country, and then the New York World Telegram reports that they were the favorite band of communists. And they lose every single job they were going to get. Right. And then Woody, uh, he's he's working as a writer, and but you know there's not much is happening for him. Uh, he's right, but but, he, but he's working on this book. And as he's working on this book, some people come over Pete Seeger's house, and one of them is uh, uh, an editor for um, a book company. And they Pete's like, hey, you should read some of Woody's stuff, and they read it, and they're blown away by it. And they sign him to a contract to write an autobiography, $500 in advance. 
And so he's like, I'm going to do this. And around this time, he meets this woman named Marjorie Mazia. Mm. She was working for Sophie Maslow. And, you know, she knew of Woody from the Tom Jode song. And she she cried to that. And uh, so, Sophie Maslow wants to start up the show again. So she uh, she brings some dancers and, and Woody works with them. And, and Marjorie is the only one who actually under gets Woody. And, uh, and, and and helps him learn time and, and works with him and teaches him. And, and uh, they, they say when they first met each other, they fell in love immediately. Mm. And uh, she was 25 and he was 30. And she was very talented herself. She was a good dancer. She could play multiple, multiple instruments. She could sing. Uh, but she was 25, he was 30, and she was had been married since she was 18. But she had never had sex. And she had no kids. Huh? She was terrified of sex. Oh. So her, she lived with her husband in Delaware, and then she'd ride the train to New York and stay at, stay at an apartment she had. And... So she was celibate with her husband? Yes. <laughs> and it was Whoa. just an arrangement they had. Uh, was he homosexual? <laughs> no. Uh, but they found that they couldn't <laughs> stop staring at each other. Uh-oh. Woody, Woody and her. Yes. She. And then one she. night he gave her his jacket on when it was cold, and they started holding hands, and... You know, my sister was cold once, too. If I could give hey, her my jacket or made of skin, I would. If I'm going to give you my jacket, I expect to play the beans. <laughs> <laughs> That's a euphemism for vagina. Uh, and then... Uh, <laughs> and uh, so they started hanging out more. And uh, and the night before, she had to ship out with Martha Graham on this uh, this tour, this this three week tour. They went on a, their first date, and she was like, she knew that they were gonna sleep together. Mm. And so they go out on their date, and they go back to her apartment, and they lay down on her bed. And Woody recognizes that she's incredibly nervous, and so Woody just spends the whole time talking about his novel and and just how how excited things are for him. And they don't sleep together. And she goes off on the tour. And in that moment, she was she felt like he recognized how how much she she really wasn't sure if she really wanted or what she wanted to do and how nervous she was. And, and she said she fell in love with him even more because of it. Ah. And as this happened, she she left, and Woody got a little crazier. He started acting out more. At, at one point, he 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 smashed one of the, the almanac's uh, mandolins because he was he didn't like how he was being treated at times. But he'd write these letters with her, and, and and it was very loving. He would write things, greetings, how do you find yourself? With your hands, I suppose. <laughs> uh, and it was very lovey, and, and uh, he was still playing with groups. He, he formed his own group at once. Uh, he went on tour with Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. Those are real names. And uh, Christmas 1942, they go down to Baltimore, and they play a, a show for all these people in Baltimore. They go out to the tent to eat. And he sits down with, with Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, and they say, you can't eat with them. That's the Negroes' only table. And what he says, I just played a... And they said, no, you can't eat with them. So what he says, uh, guys, just go to the car. And he turns around, he flips the whole table of food over, and they leave. <laughs> nice. And then about this time, he finishes his book. And Marjorie comes back, and they sleep together. And 1943, February 6th, Kathy, the first daughter, is born. And Woody, for the first time in his life, he is enthralled with his kid. Oh, God. And he goes to the hospital where she is, and he just stares at her for hours. Just And he goes home to New York City that right he, he writes a 70-page first free poem about what he'd seen. And he calls her Stack of Bones. 
because he's always looking for a good nickname. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he wrote a 70 verse poem about the birth? No, about just seeing her. He wasn't there for the birth. Oh, okay. She, she, she went to Delaware to have the birth uh, on her own. Mm. Uh, and Good. and then he showed up after after she was born, and he and he was enthralled with Kathy, his kid. And I didn't see how it happened. <laughs> she left. She came back and had a kid. Yeah. And then his book comes out. It's called Bound for Glory, and it's incredibly well received. It, some some things are like, oh, you know, it's not it's not the most beautifully written thing, but it's real and it's it's moving. And he's a hit. He's a hit with all the literary groups in New York City. It's authentic. It's authentic, it's real, and it's fun, and it's moving. Even if it's not authentic, it's authentic, I guess. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so it's April 14th, April 15th, 1943. Uh, Marjorie's in Delaware. Woody and Brian McGee go and pick her up, and they go to Seagate, where her family was living uh, uh, in New York City, near Coney Island. And Woody's 30 years old, and he's back. He's popular again. His book is going in. Now it's going into a second printing. It was so popular. Mm-hmm. He's back on the radio. He has another radio show. And now, is it written under Dr. Alonzo? No, this is all <laughs> by Woody Guthrie. <laughs> and so now... Is it like his Chris Gaines? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we thought we were getting Woody tonight. We got Alonzo. <laughs> oh, brother. Oh, boy. He's got eye makeup He's going to play all the B-sides. <laughs> And so here he is, arriving in Seagate with the love of his life, the first kid he's uh, really ever, like, just, you know, felt like, he, you know, it was a real <laughs> part of his life. And he's back in the radio. His book is popular. Uh, he's a national treasure of sorts. Yes. And they get back to New York City, and the problem is there's a world war going on. And uh, that's where I'm going to stop this today. Okay. Fair All right. right. I'm on the edge of my seat. So so, so there's a world war going on. The family that he, he loves, <laughs> because the first one was just a trial. Yeah. <laughs> 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 he came back to New York. And, uh, and uh, cliffhanger. We don't know what's going on. His guitar says this machine kills fascists, but the, uh, the army doesn't think that's enough. Yeah. I love it, Matt. Mm-hmm. I love it. And uh, here's a little thing. Uh, <laughs> here's uh, Woody wrote this Give song. Give him a Tommy gun. Woody wrote this song called The Great Historical Bum years ago. And, you know, it's one of those things you just add a verse to. And so he added this verse for Mr. Hitler. There's a man across the ocean, and I guess you know him well. His name is Adolf Hitler, and damn his soul to hell. We'll kick him in the panzers and put him on the run. That'll be the biggest thing a man has ever done. Very, very, very good. And so uh, that will lead into uh, next week's. That will lead into part two. Everybody stay tuned. Uh, we're going to say goodnight. I love you. My name is John Fahey. My name is Aaron Pita. I can't wait. I'm Matt Brissot. Good night, everybody. We love you. Good night. I ain't got no home. I'm just a roaming around. Just a wandering worker. I go from town to town. And the police make it hard wherever I may go. And I ain't got no home in this world anymore.